Welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show where we explore the different ways we can all achieve a happy, contented mind and tell some fun stories as well. Today is the last of our live interviews from the Happy Place Festival as I meet author Catherine Gray. When I was drinking, I wasn't really faithful to anyone. I always, always went out, got completely blackout drunk and would snog someone else. And I thought that was me. I thought I was a morally bad, broken person. Quitting drinking just effortlessly stopped all of that. It just wouldn't even occur to me now. Catherine has written a remarkable book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. So as you can imagine, we're going to talk a lot about our relationship with alcohol, but also how we think about our own self-esteem, dating, sex and relationships. So there is plenty to chew on there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And now, here's the show. Take a seat. Audience, Catherine, Catherine, lovely audience. There's so many people. There's a lot of people. Didn't warn okay. you about that. Um, thank you so much for, for being here to have a chat today. I read your book ages ago, so this is really overdue. I really, really have wanted to talk to you for a very, very long time. Um, and I think especially your book, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, I was so interested in for several reasons. One, my uh, husband is in recovery and he hasn't drunk for nearly seven years now, which is excellent for him and everyone else. Um, Yeah, well on Jesse. He's not here today, but I'll tell him that you clapped and he'll be very happy about that. Uh, And also, I think my relationship with drinking has changed dramatically over the years from when I was in my teens and 20s to now, and I don't very much. And that gets often an interesting reaction, which we'll get to a little later down the line. But first, I'd love for you to talk about your story a little bit more and what led you to to write this book, which has been game-changing for a lot of people. I've spoke to a couple of people who specifically were walking into this tent because they've read your book and wanted to hear more. Um, and, and to sort of hear more about how bad it got for you. And I'm imagining for most people, when you go through something like that, there's a turning point that leads you down a nice path, like writing a great book, if you can make that sort of that pivotal moment happen. So you open up the book quite early on talking about a particularly low incident of when you woke up somewhere you weren't expecting to. Do you mind talking about that? No, not at all. So um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, So I was 27 at the time and I was working for a glossy magazine and the night before I'd been to a free drinks party So I was already finding it very challenging to only have three drinks on a night out. At free drinks parties, all bets were off. I would have six or seven and get completely plastered. 
Um, and I was living in Brixton at the time, so I was stumbling at her around trying to get home, and this police officer tried to help me get home because I couldn't remember where I lived. And I told her to F off. And then they took me in, arrested me for being drunk and disorderly. And the next morning I woke up, it was a work day, <laughs> and they wouldn't discharge me until... Or release me, I'm not in hospital, release, <laughs> um, until 9am. And the worst bit of it all was when they were, um, when I was leaving, they said, right, we've got your belongings. And I thought, oh, thank heavens, at least I've got my bag, my keys, my phone, my purse. And the only thing that I'd had on me when they found me was a tiny a child's hairbrush, a pink hairbrush that I'd never seen before in my life. And I must have picked up from a toilet floor or something to brush my hair. It was just mortifying. Um, it was terrible. But mm. I continued drinking for another six years because I thought, do you know what? It's free drinks parties. They're the problem. Yeah. So I'll just stop going to those and I'll be all right. Mm. But I wasn't. So. Well, isn't it funny because, um, you know, it... All of these stories, and I've got some where I've ended up in ridiculous situations that I now regret or think, God, I mean, what was I even thinking? And we talk about them now, and we will have a laugh, and it is, you know, there are funny anecdotes that sort of come out of these situations, but for you, uh, there, there were many moments where it just, it wasn't funny anymore, and you knew that you had to make a change. But at, So as you say, at that point, when you'd woken up in a prison cell, you still didn't realise that you, you had a problem and that you probably needed to make a change. No, I, I honestly thought it was the circumstances. I thought the next night I didn't drink, but then that weekend I went out again. Mm. I thought I can get this under control. I was, I'd always been able to do everything else that I set my mind to, whether it was run a half marathon or get into magazines. So I thought it's just a matter of applying my intellect to this. So I started this moderate drinking experiment where I had all these rules like I would go to the gym before I went to the pub or mark three nights in my diary where I wasn't going to drink or I switched from um, wine to cider because obviously it's bigger and it takes longer to drink and nothing worked. I Mm. always ended up wasted. Mm. So, yeah, but it took a long time for me to really realise I can't have one. Yeah, You know, it needs to be none for me. And then I thought my social life was going to be over, but it was just the most amazing decision I've ever made. So, yeah. Well, this is it. I think a lot of people, um, and because it's such a, a, a cultural thing that we're so used to that, you know, especially in the UK, you go out and you go drinking or you go for a meal and you have a drink or you celebrate. So you have a drink and it's kind of so ingrained in moments of celebration, moments of joy or supposed fun that I guess it's hard to recognise when you have tipped from fun into it being self-destruction. What, what was the moment for you when you realised, this isn't fun anymore, this now is actually ruining my life? Yeah. I mean, there were so many moments. In movies, they always have this dramatic rock bottom where maybe they crash a car or trash their sister's wedding cake or, you know, drive a plane drunk. But... For me, there was hundreds of tiny rock bottoms, yeah. and they were there were times when what I was how I was behaving wasn't matching up with my morals. So, say for instance, lying to work about having food poisoning when actually I had wine poisoning, um, snogging people that weren't my boyfriend, and then just feeling awful, wretched about it yeah. because that's 
not who I am and now I never cheat now that I don't drink um just so many moments where I thought this isn't me this how I'm behaving when I'm drunk is not who I am Mm. and so yeah and then I I started researching suicide because I was so anxious and so depressed so that was the time when I really sought help and started trying to quit drinking and did you realize at that point when you when you really felt like you didn't want to be here did you, could you recognise that it was the alcohol rather than it being anything else in your life? Or were you still sort of blaming other things that were, uh, were going on? No, I knew it was the alcohol at that point. I really knew. Um, because I was just having ferocious hangovers. I was getting the shakes. I was having to drink to stop the shakes. It was just so obvious that it was the alcohol that needed to go. Um, but I honestly thought... How am I going to go out and dance or go to a gig or go on a date or do any of those things ever again? So I thought, okay, I might be able to show up to work or use my keys at 2 a.m., but I'm never going to be able to go and party again. But it just turned out to be the complete opposite, and now I'm so much happier. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because I think, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people here, and I certainly have had moments where. In my 20s, I was drinking loads and going out all the time, and it was what everyone else was doing, so I would go along with that. And like you say, you want to dance on tables and be wild, and you think you can't do that without alcohol. For me, I was, um, I guess, lucky in a sense that I had these little incremental moments that meant that I just sort of slowed down naturally with age, and, and I had kids, and, and, and work became very sort of busy, so my social life did sort of tail off quite slowly but for you it was sort of overnight you're not drinking anymore yeah but it took five months um of stopping and starting because i would stop for seven days and then a lot of people react strangely as well when you quit drinking i don't know whether anyone found this but it's the only lifestyle choice that you make that's a positive lifestyle choice where people try and talk you out of it once you've made it um so i mean obviously you've heard some of my stories i was really bad and yet nine out of ten of my friends were like you're not that bad though (laughs) why don't you just take three months off why don't you don't need to quit completely they all tried to talk me back into it and even after I'd been sober for a couple of years they tried to talk me back into it so it's so often the case yeah like sometimes because people don't want to lose their mate who's seriously wild and fun on the night out I'm imagining that you were that person Fun Catherine, wild Catherine. Um, And also they don't want to lose their buddy, who they go with, and they know that that's going to be my fun adventurer for the evening. And also then maybe they have to look at themselves a bit more and how much they're drinking. So I completely agree. I I find it culturally a really weird one because even in my late 20s where I really wasn't as bothered about going out um, and I wasn't that interested in drinking. And I, I sort of got to a point where I... Like, now, if I have half a drink, I am hammered. And I, I physically can't have more than that. I'm, I'm done. So I haven't had to put a rigorous sort of ban on, I don't drink anymore. I just can't. And in my 20s, when that sort of started, um, I remember saying to a couple of friends when we were out, oh, I'm, I'm cool, I've, just, I've had one, I'm fine. And the responses are usually, and we would have all heard this if we're in a similar situation, oh, don't be boring. Yeah, that's it. Don't be boring. <laughs> let, like, why don't you let, loosen up a bit? Yeah. Or you're no fun. You're no which fun. Which is literally the last thing you want to be called at a party. Yeah. No fun. <laughs> it's such a bizarre 
situation that culturally that it, we know that's going to be the reaction and we sort of yeah. apologize like oh no sorry i'm not I, i'm not drinking tonight and it's kind of a bit embarrassing and and people are going is she on medication is she pregnant they start gossiping and there's rumors in your friendship circle going around there's something going on with fern she's definitely having another baby she's definitely got an illness she's not telling us about so i just chose not to drink it's such a funny reaction how have you dealt with that because for you i'm imagining this was a very important important marker in your life that you were sober you needed a support network around you of people that understood that and that could back you up and be there if you were feeling wobbly because it's a hard treacherous path to go down knowing that you made that decision how did you cope with that reaction around you um well lots of different ways at first I was very sincere and I would tell people you know oh well I'd started researching suicide and then I found that people just moved away from me at parties and I was like okay maybe not that tack Um, and then I started just making light of it and that worked a lot better so say for instance telling them the story of waking up in the Brixton cell that then normally people were like yeah lighter no (laughs) no drinking for you but I you know in a fun way yeah Uh, or telling them you know it's safer for everyone if I don't drink if I have a drink I'll be dancing on that table topless by Mm 11pm that also worked so I found I found that if you make light of it then people back off but there are some people who just won't let it go mm. and I've had people do things like send a glass of wine to my table at a, par- at a wedding because he didn't want me to not drink wow. it, people are just really strange about it and I think it, it, your decision not to drink they treat it like it's almost um, an affront yeah. to the social situation that you're ruining it in some way Mm. um but do you know what things are really beginning to change and am i right in thinking this out this festival is alcohol free it certainly is well that's amazing Mm. and uh, like that's wicked we don't need alcohol here to have a nice time yeah and it's one of the friendliest loveliest festivals Mm. i've ever been to um you just don't need alcohol to connect no. to people or have a good time. And I love the fact that it's not even a big deal that there's no alcohol here. So, yeah, well done. No, well, I, I, I agree. I don't think it is needed. I think, you know, if you use it as that's your way to relax at the end of the day or whatever it is, then absolutely. But I think there are certainly other ways to connect with humans. And, and a lot of the time, um, we think it's going to make us inhibition-free. So we can be liberated, and if we drink, we're going to be the, our best wild selves and speak the truth and, and dance on tables and be free. And... I wonder if if we look at it deeper, like what that says about how scared we are normally. We're scared we're going to make a fool of ourselves. We're scared we're going to be rejected. Do you think that's what it is socially? Yeah, I, and actually I think the biggest thing that, that it is is social anxiety. Mm. And I think we start, well, our generations, I would say generation X and generation the millennials, have been drinking from a very early age, from teenage years. And so you learn to have a drink when you go to a party. That's what you do to calm down. Or you preload before the party, which is what I used to do. Yeah, same. Um, So you just don't really go into social situations where there's lots of people where you're not a little bit buzzed. So you you don't know how to do it, I think. Mm. And it becomes a crutch. Because we all do think that, you know, certainly I remember my husband go, when we were going to a wedding for the first time after he quit drinking. And, um, and he's, he's quite um, 
he's like the friendliest, lovely guy, but he can be quite shy with lots of big groups of people. And he was so terrified and still does feel anxious about it now, going into something like this or a wedding or a big party and being able to just communicate with lots of people or feel he can be himself. How did you tackle that? Do you remember the first time you went socialising after you'd made that decision and, and how you felt seeing things in a clearer light and also how you then approached big social situations? Mm. Well, actually, it's really interesting. So introverts, I think a lot of introverts drink more to deal with social situations because it's not their natural environment. Lots of people and loudness and all of that activity. So I think it's quite, there's quite a common link. Um, but somebody gave me some really good advice, which really helped me when I walk into a party, especially in the early days. And they said that in everybody's head, they're the big stick figure and everyone else is a little stick figure. And so in, in their head, you're a little stick figure. They're just thinking about mostly about themselves. Yeah. And then when you think about, say, for instance, if you're on a dance floor and there's somebody the other side of the dance floor. You're not really analysing how they're dancing or what they're wearing <laughs> or how their hair looks. Yeah. You're just thinking, you just think, oh, I like their dress or whatever. Yeah. You, just, you just, they pass you by. You're not scrutinising them mm. the way that we feel that we're being scrutinised because we scrutinise ourselves like that. It's so, so important to remember that. Um, I, I still get loads of social anxiety if I, I'm at work I don't weirdly I don't know why I can go into sort of work mode or if I'm talking to people and that's my job and I'm communicating but if I'm in purely a social situation I do think oh my god what are they thinking of me I shouldn't have said that did I use the right word have I got an eye bogey you know it's constant rumination about what is wrong with me and I think we all do that. And I will even sit with friends that I've had a coffee with that I've known for years. And when they've gone, I think, oh, God, was I fun? Was it, am I, what, did I think I was boring? Did I ask them enough questions? And I'm analysing every moment of what I've said or could have said. And like you say, they're not sat there going, she didn't ask me many questions or her hair looked crap today. They're, think, they're worrying about their own thing. And I think the more we all remember that, hopefully the more in social situations we'll just go, ah, and just breathe and relax and, and enjoy it rather than worrying about all of that outside noise. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, apart from that and the social anxiety, what other emotions or bits that were going on mentally for you do you think you were trying to mute with alcohol? I think it was mainly anxiety. So when I was 11, 12, I start, you know, hormones start going nuts and I started becoming very anxious and I started drinking at 12. Mm. And I was like this is my solution. Yeah. This is this is what I do to become the party girl to, you know, silence my inhibitions and be able to go and do whatever I want to. So I really felt like I'd found this magic elixir that could 
get rid of my nerves and transport me into party land. Mm. Um, so I used it and used it and used it for 21 years. And then when I stopped using it, I had to really naturally, organically deal with my anxiety and find solutions to it. And, and so how did you? Because um, obviously when you're not drinking in any situation, social or not... Um, and it's not just alcohol that we'll use in his addiction to mute things. You know, we all might have a, an addiction to going on our phones because that we can just blank out of reality and go on our phones or, uh, or food or exercise or whatever thing that you might do excessively, shopping, whatever it is, to dull down stuff that we don't want to think about. We all do it. it. I think it's just human nature, isn't it, that you try and avoid the things that you know are sticky and tricky and and going to be a bit complex to unpick and sort out what was the starting point for you how did you work out new methods find new tools that did not involve that particular addiction but allowed you to look at the things that you you found tricky in life well, one of the main things that I used in the beginning was exercise because just 10 minutes gets rid of an alcohol craving. And so I did a lot of exercise. I was getting up at 6am to do 12-kilometre runs. Wow. That does not happen anymore. <laughs> um, that was a phase. We call it that <laughs> yeah. a phase. But I found that if I went for a good hard run before a party halved my caffeine intake, did some meditation, then I was absolutely fine. It would take me longer to relax into the party. It would take maybe half an hour to an hour, but you do naturally relax into it after a while anyway. And also, once you are in social situations and you see people drinking, you see that nothing good ever happens after 1am. Mm. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> after 1am, things get really messy. Mm. And also, the time when people are the nicest and the wittiest and the kindest and the most charismatic is when they've had the least to drink. Yeah. So it compounds your decision the more you socialise sober to stay sober. And also... There's just no way. I've, I, I turned six years sober next week. Congratulations. Just, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, and there's just no way. Six years ago, I was so anxious about going for a coffee with somebody. I just wouldn't have been able to do this. So the longer it is that you don't drink, the less your anxiety is because you no longer rely on the alcohol to cure the anxiety. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful. So say you're at a party now, and like you say, you've got that easing in period where you've got maybe half an hour where you do feel a discomfort or you have got a negative voice chattering away in your head. What do you do just to quell it and let yourself relax into it? Well, it's interesting what you were saying earlier about when you're in work mode, you don't get anxious. So I used to interview people for magazines, so I kind of pretend to go into work mode. Mm -hmm. And... I try to make people as comfortable as possible. I focus all my energy on them, which is probably why you don't get anxious in work mode because yeah. you're concentrating on your interviewee. Absolutely. So I try and ask them lots of questions and prize them open, which takes my focus away from me. And if I'm really freaking out, I go into the toilet and deep breathe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Lock yourself in a cubicle. Yeah. Ten minutes later, your, your deep breathing has cured all. Um, it works. But I think that's a really lovely tactic um, to yeah concentrate on the other people around you. Because, it, again, it takes off that focus of 
am I saying the right thing? Am I acting in the right way? Am I letting loose enough or being fun? You know, it's it's a, a really lovely way of of getting yourself out of that mindset. Um, what have been your most unexpected joys of being sober that you had never imagined? Well, the first one is quite a serious one. Um, so when I was drinking, I wasn't really faithful to anyone. I always, always went out, got completely blackout drunk and would snog someone else. And I thought that was me. I thought I was a morally bad, broken person. And quitting drinking just effortlessly stopped. I, I just stop all of that. Mm. It's just, it just wouldn't even occur to me now to cheat on someone. So I want everyone to know that if you've ever done that, it's probably not you, it's the alcohol. Yeah. If you remove the alcohol from that situation, you most likely would not have done that thing. Mm. So that was such a wonderful thing for me to find out. And did it take you a long time to work that out and forgive yourself? Did you have self-loathing or um, negative feelings about yourself from knowing what you'd done? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and for the first year or so, it was like something bobbing up in a lake. And I'd be like, oh, no, that memory. Yeah, just push yeah. it back down. Um, but counselling, that's a good way to deal with it. Writing about it. Um, research has shown that if you write about a traumatic episode, then um, it, you heal quicker from it and you forgive yourself quicker from it. So that really helps. Mm. And it, it's just time as well, because you see the longer that you don't drink that you're different. Mm -hmm. So you can forgive yourself naturally because you can see that it's almost like you were body snatched by booze. Yeah. You were hijacked. Um, and that wasn't you. That wasn't the real you. It, it's such an important thing to do because I think whether alcohol's involved or not, forgiving yourself for things, you know, I've got tons of regrets, things I wish I hadn't done. Um, I hadn't said, you know, lots of things. I, I'm sure everybody in this tent, if they were completely honest with themselves, will have a regret or something. One of those memories that you've so beautifully just described as something bobbing up, because it does, it, you're just toodling along in your day and then there it is. No, not that memory. It's, it's hard. And I think to forgive yourself, because you're only punishing yourself at the end of the day when it is repeatedly coming back into your life to forgive yourself and to be able to move forward is so important. And I'm imagining that's been an important part of your healing and your recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's so important to know that you're not a bad person. Yeah. I mean, you would look at any other drug, say, for instance, MDMA. You think you love everyone, right? You think you've just met someone and you think you're in love with them. Um, you know that that's the effect of the drug. But we have a blind spot when it comes to alcohol and we think that that releases our true selves, mm. you know, all that in vino veritas stuff. And it's just not true. People do things when they're drunk that they would never dream of doing sober. I'm pretty sure I've picked off uh, like a packet of chips off the floor and eaten them. Yeah. I wouldn't do that when I'm sober. I crowd surfed at a Hanson gig. I wouldn't do that normally. <laughs> That's not a regular thing that I would do. I wouldn't. I mean, it was great fun. And I ended up on the stage playing tambourine with Taylor, Isaac and Zach. But it's not a normal thing. No. But that's it. It's the, we'll blame the gin that night. Thank you. It wasn't nothing to do with me. Um, and, what, and what other parts of your life have expanded, flourished and thrived since quitting alcohol? Uh, well, I would say 
I, I think I also thought I was a very lazy person because I couldn't really be asked to do anything. I would lie in bed till 11 a.m. on a weekend. And now I'm not that person at all. I'm very much a doer. Um, so my career's taken off in a way I don't think it would have done otherwise. Um, and I think I'm kinder as well because I think when you are stuck in a cycle of self-loathing, you're meaner to other people. Because you're kind of you're being horrible to yourself, yeah. so you're horrible to other people. You're judging yourself, so you're horrible. To, it's it's like it comes in and out. Mm. Um, so I don't do that anymore as much as possible. Um, Isn't that a good thing to remember in life, though, as well? Like when someone's being mean to you, like we forget, but we know it's because they don't like themselves very much, or they've yeah. got some discomfort about themselves. And the yeah. easiest thing is just to go plonk it on someone else. I, I like to remember that one because, like most people, I get shit off other people. And I know that most of the time it's not about me, but it's good to remember that one. Really good one. Yeah. Uh, happy people are kind people. Yes. Yeah. And any other areas? Um, let's talk about... Well, let's move on to your next book because um, you've said that after helping yourself move away from one addiction, you realised there was another in your life. Oh, yeah. Which was... Love addiction. <laughs> Love now, addiction. I, I know that just sounds like I've made that up, but it's a real thing. Um, the Priory says it's real, so <laughs> they know what they're talking it's real. about. Yeah. So it's basically this belief that unless you're in a relationship or you end up with somebody, that your life cannot be happy. So if you're single then you can't be fully complete and you need your other half. So that's what love addiction is, I think. And, um, I mean, culturally, that's a big mess we've got ourselves into because that thought is mirrored in so many parts of society that you must find a partner, you must go on dating apps, you must end up married with kids, you know, whatever the fairy tale presented to us has been. Um, You're, with your writing, going about unpicking that and looking at it further, but how do we culturally move away from that equaling happiness? Because we know it doesn't. You know, we see many people get divorced we see many people that are married that still personally struggle and have all sorts of issues in life how do we reinforce that thought so we don't have to panic about that in the future or the younger generations don't have to worry about that yeah well I think it's um when you look at the research it doesn't back up what we're told um that the fairy tale is so getting married does make you happier but it only lasts for about two years so a year before the wedding and then a year afterwards and then afterwards, you just adapt. So people are laughing and going, yeah, I, I hear you. People recognise this, I think. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. Okay. Some people are going, actually, it was the day after the wedding that it changed. So you've got that a bit wrong. It's shorter. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's just weddings that make people really happy or planning <laughs> weddings. Um, and, but also what's really interesting is that we adapt after a divorce as well. People think that if they get divorced, that's a real failure, that they, you know, they feel ashamed. And actually, it's one of the most courageous things you can do, walking away from a relationship that is no longer serving you. Um, and you adapt to that after two years as well. So two years is like the magic time period. Mm. Um, so what happens is, overall, everyone's about the same amount of happy. Yeah. So married people are only 1% happier than single people. And yet, I, so I'm 39 and I'm single, and 
people are like, are you okay? <laughs> you're like, like, yeah, I'm probably yeah. happier than you when you're cleaning up your child's shit every morning. I'm sitting having a nice porridge on my own, watching the news. Pretty happy. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just, I think it will go with time. It's so patronising and annoying that that's culturally what happens. Yeah. It's bizarre. Or the question might be, Oh, are you dating? Have you, are you looking for someone? And it's like, why can't you just be you, living your life, doing your thing? It's such a bizarre... I mean, maybe it's awkwardness. People want to make conversations so it just comes out. Yeah. But actually, it is, um, it is quite patronising. Yeah. But I, I don't think people mean to be patronising. No, no. I think what it is, is we like people who make the same decisions as us. Mm. So if you're in a couple, you want other people to be in a couple. If you're single, you want other people to be single because that kind of validates your life choices. So that's how we are. We like people to match us. And, and having that realisation, because obviously it was sort of, I guess, peeling back layers for you of losing the alcohol, having more clarity, seeing what other addictions were there, mm. and some incredible self-inventory that you've done there to to make your life better um how do you now look at relationships look at dating look at being in a partnership how has that changed your thoughts around it well before um my happiness was entirely dependent on it so when I was in a relationship everything counted on that survival of that relationship whereas now I almost see relationships as a bit of a side order <laughs> that's, yeah that's kind of how I see it and I've got this really beautiful single future in my head where I'm going to have this farmhouse and I'm going to have a horse and call him Hendrix and yeah. a goose called Cher they're all going to be called after <laughs> musical icons, maybe a goat called Fern <laughs> yeah I'll be, I'll be a goat I'm fine with that I like that idea. <laughs> but just having that future in my head means that I'm not panicking about it anymore. I, I'm not... It doesn't matter so much if it doesn't work out. And also, you can have really beautiful relationships that don't go the long distance, but they're still wonderful. Absolutely. So, and that teach you stuff and enrich yeah. your life. Absolutely. And um, if you do meet somebody at some point and you feel like, actually this is worth me getting involved in and partnering up. How will you go about being in a relationship differently to how you might have before? Oh, so many things. <laughs> so I used to engage in really, really unhealthy behaviour, particularly when I was drinking, mm. like doing things like reading their texts, yeah. which is really quite common, actually. I've done it. Yeah, when you think that someone's cheating on you, you think it feels like self-preservation. Yeah. Like, I need to find out if, if it's true. The adrenaline kicks in, you're in. Yeah. Then you think, I'll just check the emails yeah. as well. <laughs> Might as well go and watch that while I'm here. <laughs> Maybe even pop into the DMs, see what's happening there. This is not with my husband currently, may I add. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, so I wouldn't do that anymore. No. Definitely wouldn't follow them either. Uh, no, I've never mm. done that. I, I haven't. I haven't. I swear. <laughs> um, I yeah, just much more chilled out. Mm. Just and also, I remember telling one boyfriend that if we got to four years and he hadn't proposed, I was walking. Right, I, I was out of there. It, you know, he had to propose by four years. 
And now I'm just much more chilled out about that. Now that I know. Because you like yourself more. You think I don't need someone else to validate that I'm good. I I feel great. Yeah, but I also think I've realised that I thought I wanted this big fairy tale wedding, but I'm an introvert who doesn't really want. You know, well, apart from now, this is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, huge parties yeah. aren't really my comfort zone. So why would I want to do that? Mm. So if I ever get married, I'll probably bugger off to Bali and just do it on the down low. Yes. Um, but it's really not something that I'm aiming my life towards now. My life is more aimed towards the farmhouse and you know the mm. career and the friends. And because we get loves from so many other places, and I've got amazing family and friends. And why is romantic love more powerful than platonic love? I, I just absolutely agree. Don't think it is. So. And also, um, you know, I think socially and culturally, and how media, the media presents things to us, we're meant to have all these sort of areas of our lives uh, completed and ticked to be a whole. Uh, wholesome, perfect human. And I still fall into this trap all the time, um, especially with the sort of social aspect of things. I have friends uh, who I've known since I was tiny at school, and I've got a few new friends that I've made along the way, some who are teaching workshops and doing great things today, this weekend. Um, But I don't have, like, hundreds of friends like I thought I needed in my 20s, and I'm not out you know, dancing on tables anymore. And sometimes I feel like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something, you know, fundamentally wrong with me that I don't want to go out and socialise? I don't want to go out and be wild and crazy anymore. So I love your dream of it's you, you've got the farmhouse, you've got the goose called share, you've worked out your utopia and what makes you feel good without all that exterior noise adding to it. How do you negate all of that? Because we are bombarded these days with social media, the news, what's in magazines, telling us how we should be. How have you made your own path and decision and how do you stick to that without feeling like there's something wrong with me? Well, one of the things I do is if I'm feeling a bit love addict I don't watch rom-coms. Right, good. Because <laughs> they are terrible for compounding it. And I think there's only one film I've ever seen that w- would fall into that category where she doesn't end up getting together with the guy, and that's Begin Again with Keira Knightley. Oh, I haven't seen that. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'll watch that tonight. Um, but I've just spoiled the ending. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I won't watch that. Oops. <laughs> So I'm just careful about what messaging goes into my head. But now that I've done all the research and written about it, I feel like I've got my head on straight. So even when people come to me and they're like, oh, you're a spinster then, I don't get as affected by it. Whereas before, it would have absolutely crushed me. My dad started calling me a spinster when I was 33. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, I know, nice. Um, but that's how he was brought up. He yeah. was brought up in 1950s Ireland, and if women were over 30 and not married, they were spinsters. Mm. Simple. They needed to get a husband, pronto. Mm. So that's just how he saw it. So I kind of let those messages wash over me now um, as much as possible. But obviously it does still get to me, and then I have to pull myself back. That's a good thing to hear, because I think if we all know deep down what what makes us feel good, and it will be different for everybody, we can't be indoctrinated by, you know, this is the model that should work for everyone, this is what will make you a rounded, happy person. Um, so, like, when I am in bed at nine reading a book, and I know that I'm really happy deep down, 
you know, I've got to not worry about X, Y, and Z who are on Instagram raving it up on the table, having the best time, because that's not my happiness. And and uh, I think it's really important what you just said there that even if you do get swayed, you just root back to what that feeling is for you and and what brings you happiness. And I think it's a brilliant message what you're putting out there in both books. They're they're informative. They're hilarious at times. I just I love them. I love how you write and. I think for a lot of people sat here today, what you've said has struck a chord and resonated. I'm seeing heads nodding on a level and, um, and we shall all take so much heed from what you've said today because of your wisdom and experience and the fact that you've been really willing to share it. So I massively appreciate that. And I'd love it if you could all give a massive round of applause for our first podcast today, Catherine Gray. I hope your heads were nodding along to Catherine as well. What an absolutely fascinating human and just a lovely lady thank you Catherine I so so enjoyed that her book The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober is available right now go and check it out next week we're off to Amsterdam to meet a woman by the name of Nikki Schilling when you're in that emotion of that I don't feel worthy or I don't feel loved then you contract right your heart closes and everything is dark so I go to the beach for example but I know people who go cooking or, you know, take a bath. But know what makes you happy, right? Know where you, where your heart always opens. Hear her truly inspiring story as soon as it's released when you subscribe. Do it now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or on your Amazon and Google Home devices. A massive thanks again to Catherine. Thanks to the wonderful live audience at Tatton Park. To the producers Thomas Griffin, Sarah Miles and Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And to you bloody lovely lot for listening. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.